The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. You can tell by now that we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We took a little bit of a break right through the holiday season, but I am so excited to get back into this wonderful account of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, the question before us today is this. It's found in Mark 4.41. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this Jesus? This is the question that Mark, the writer of this gospel, is determined to answer for us in his gospel account. And if you've been with us so far, what you've seen is he has proven and shown to us that Jesus has authority over disease. He has authority over deformity and disability. He has authority and power over demons. We have even read that he has authority to forgive sins. And now we're seeing in Mark's gospel in this chapter, to to conclude chapter 4, that Jesus even has authority over the wind and the sea. Mark is proving to us that Jesus isn't just some teacher, like some say he is. That he isn't just some miracle worker or magician, like some thought he was. He isn't even a prophet of old. He is something categorically different altogether. He is God in flesh who has come to save his people from their sins. This is who Jesus is. And this is the primary reason this story is in our Bibles. To show us and to tell us and to convince the readers of the Bible, of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is in fact God. But not only does this text show us that Jesus is God, not only does this text show us that Jesus is Lord over the wind and the sea or over the storm, but we also get to see that Jesus is also Lord over our fears. We'll see this in the text. In particular, he's Lord over the kind of fears that proceeds out of faithlessness. The kind of fear that tries to get in between us and God And try to distort who God is and his promises towards us in our lives. So, in our story we will see that the only way to overcome faithless fear is by trusting a faithful God and that is Jesus. So let's check it out together. 
Now, our story begins at the end of a full day of ministry for Jesus and his disciples. What we had just read has come out of a very, very long day of ministry. Jesus was teaching out of a boat to a big crowd on the shore at the Sea of Galilee. The text tells us this in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Now, if you can remember from previous sermons, Jesus started preaching out of boats back in Mark chapter 3 because the crowds were getting so big and somewhat unruly, they would even press in on him because everybody wanted to touch Jesus because they wanted to be healed. Everyone wanted to interrupt Jesus because they wanted to hear him teach or they wanted some kind of miracle done. So the disciples thought, man, these crowds are getting so big, so unruly, they might crush Jesus. So they moved him to a boat. This has been the most effective way for him to preach. So his way of preaching and now has been, his, his preaching problem has been solved by getting in a boat and preaching to the masses on the shores. Now on this particular day, Jesus had been teaching parables on the kingdom of God from sunup to sundown. And if you've been with us through the series of Mark, you've been with us when we've studied the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. These are all parables that we have studied over the span of a few weeks here in the church. But it's important for us to know that although we took a few weeks to cover those, Jesus taught all those in one day. This is the day. He covered all that material in one day and then some. There are all sorts of things Jesus did on this day, words that he shared, needs that he met that are not recorded for us in the gospel, but we know he at least did those things. And this is the context of our story. An extremely long day of ministry, an exhausting day of ministry and teaching. And as the day is winding down and the sun begins to set, Jesus makes a decision to not come in from the boat and find a place to sleep, which, I mean, that sounds pretty nice to me after a very long day of ministry. No, he tells his disciples, instead of getting out of the boat, let's stay in the boat, let's set sail across the Sea of Galilee in the dark. This is where our story picks up. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Let's read it again. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So here they are. They're exhausted. Evening has come. And instead of bedtime, which is what I would have preferred, they are told by Jesus to set sail across what the Sea of Galilee is, pretty much a big lake, in the dark of night. Now the Sea of Galilee is roughly 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. So sailing across, it would only take a few hours if the conditions are favorable. So I want you to know this isn't some like sea voyage that's going to take days and nights. This is just a large lake, Several hours in good conditions, the disciples will reach their destination. So they set off in the night to the other side with a few other boats, the text tells us. And as they are sailing across the sea, we read that suddenly the weather conditions change. And they change for the worse. Picking up in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now Mark records that this windstorm was a great windstorm. 
That word great can also be translated into the word mega. So to help get a better idea of what's happening here, this isn't just some big windstorm. This is a mega windstorm. This is a very abnormal, strange, powerful windstorm that is hitting the Sea of Galilee while they're in the middle of it in the dark of night. This was unusually big, unusually dangerous. Now to this day, the Sea of Galilee is known to have waves as big as six feet during windstorms. That's pretty big. I'm roughly six feet. So a wave as high as me hitting you on a lake, mind you. In 1992, when a megastorm hit the Sea of Galilee, there are accounts of waves reaching as high as 10 feet. That's bigger than me. If you were visiting Campus Point over the past week, then you have noticed that there are some pretty big waves out there. All throughout our coast was lighting up with humongous swell, but Campus Point was roughly about 10 feet. So if you saw the waves out there and thought those were big waves, that's how big waves can get on the Sea of Galilee. We have good reason to believe that this is, if this is a megastorm, a big windstorm, the waves could have been as big as 10 feet for the disciples. And that is extremely scary, especially considering that the sides of the boats in these ancient boats were roughly four feet high. So imagine a six-foot wave or a 10-foot wave, 10-foot swell on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night hitting a fishing boat. This is a very scary situation. The text tells us that the chop and swell is breaking so high and so consistent that it is filling the boat with water faster than they can bail it out. All this detail is to tell us that this is a very scary situation. This is a perilous situation. The disciples are clearly afraid here. They are sinking. They are scrambling for their lives Desperation is setting in, and in the chaos, they notice that their teacher, the guy who was the one who told them to sail across the Sea of Galilee, the one who got this all in motion, is asleep in the back of a boat on a cushion. It's unbelievable. It's a pretty fun story, if you really think about it. And I don't know why the detail here on the cushion is, but you know what, it, it, to me it reads as almost a bit of a joke or sarcasm. It's like almost like, so where was Jesus in all this? Oh, he was in the back of the boat, all comfy, asleep on a cushion while we're all dying. Now, I'm not sure how long it took them to decide, the disciples, how long it took them to decide who would wake Jesus up. I'm not sure if they drew straws. I'm not sure if they played rock, scissors, paper. But one of the disciples decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to wake Jesus up. Because we're in a situation where I feel like we're going to die and Jesus needs to do something about it. And so, one of the disciples goes up and wakes Jesus up and they express exactly how they feel in that moment. And here's what they say to Jesus. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Now let's take a moment just to consider what's being asked here. Imagine with me telling the Son of God who put aside his glory, who veiled himself in human weakness, who took up residence in a womb and was born into this world, who experienced cold and hunger and pain and sickness and sadness and betrayal, 
And even at this very point in his life, in his ministry, was literally traveling towards the cross to endure the full wrath of God and die for these disciples of his. All because of how deeply he cared for them. If disciples have only could have known the depths of Jesus' heart towards them in that moment. But here they are, slightly rebuking Jesus for his apparent indifference. Now this challenged me as I thought through this entire little, this, this little passage, this little footnote on comment on Jesus. Because initially when I, when I thought about this text, I thought, man, how foolish of these disciples to question Jesus' care. I mean, these are the guys who have heard Jesus' teaching. They spent time with Jesus. They know Jesus' heart, presumably. They know he just spent some time talking about the parables of the kingdom and how the kingdom is going to start very small, but it's going to grow to be huge. And this is the beginning of the kingdom. It's still in its beginning stages, so we have a long way to go. We're going to build this kingdom big because God will be glorified. God will build his kingdom. So I thought to myself, how dumb of these disciples to actually think that Jesus would let them perish in a boat right after he teaches these parables. But as I thought about it, I think the Holy Spirit quickly reminded me that this is exactly what we do when we are desperate, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, and when we feel our own feelings, when we feel as if God is not involved in our trial or in our pain, when we feel that God doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives. I will confess, I've had moments in my life personally where I was scared and clearly distressed, and most of this has revolved around my children. If you're a parent, maybe you can relate. Most of my stress and my fear has revolved around my kids. And I have, I have verbally communicated to God in times of distress and fear my thoughts on how petty I think it is that God would just not heal my kid. That he wouldn't just step in and relieve their pain. And my thought on that would be like, God, you can say the word and heal my children. God, if you can calm the wind and the sea, then you can calm my child's breathing issues. So why don't you do it, God? Can't you see that I feel as if I'm perishing? Don't you care? Maybe you can relate to that. Truth be told, God cares for my children infinitely more than I do. And truth be told, God cares for you and me infinitely more than we will ever be able to comprehend. And the Bible tells us that. God tells us that. So why do we do this then? Why do we at times question if God cares or if God is present or if God will do anything? Well, I think the reason why we question God's goodness and his presence in our life at times when things are going terribly wrong is because of fear. And not just any fear, it's the fear that, that tries to overcome us. It's the fear that tries to overcome our faith. And I, in our story, Jesus has a, has a few words to say about that. So the disciples are afraid and they feel as if their master doesn't care. So they wake him up and let him know exactly how they feel. This is in Mark 4, 39. And Jesus wakes and he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased 
and there was a great calm. Now this is a very powerful image, or I should say scene in Jesus' life. Picture this with me. Imagine Jesus, imagine being in a boat with Jesus, even that just is crazy. But Jesus in this boat, he stood up in the midst of a storm, in the midst of complete chaos, and what appears to be from the disciples utter despair, and he rebukes the wind and the sea. He speaks to the elements, and the wind and the sea listen to him. They just stop. They completely calm down. Now, I had two thoughts when I actually was thinking about this text. The first thought was, how magnificent to be able to witness something like this. How marvelous to see Jesus tell a storm to be still, and it actually listens to him. I mean, this is the God of the universe standing in a boat, speaking to a storm, and the storm submits to him like that. The text tells us that it was an immediate calm. The Sea of Galilee went quiet. I can only imagine how powerful this moment must have been for those who witnessed it. Now, here's a worshipful thought in thinking about this text. All creation, all of it, knows the voice of Jesus and, dare I say, joyfully submits to it. All of creation, the bird that I hear chirping over there at Kirby Hall or the education building, if God told to be quiet, it would be quiet in an instant. All of creation knows the voice of God and listens to it. The wind and the sea, the mountains and the valleys, the trees and the rocks, all that flies and swims and swarms and crawls and creeps on the earth, all that is in heaven and all that is on earth knows the word of the Lord and gladly submits to it. All things were created through him. All things are for him. And it is in him that all creation is held together and have their existence, Colossians 1 tells us. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has... Second thought on this text is how ridiculous that the crown jewel of his creatures, the ones who were in the boat, the one that God cares most for, man chooses to rebel and ignore the word of the Lord. What a contrast, right? You know, storms are always amazing to me. I don't like winter that much, but the things that I love about winter, there are a few, and one of them is storms, partly because I'm a surfer, so I love swell. I love when storms come in. But I also love the raw power of a storm. I love when there's, light, when there's a huge thunderstorm coming in. My family will go up on Old San Marcos Road and we'll just watch the lightning strike over Santa Barbara, over the ocean where the oil rigs are. And I'm just mesmerized by the power of a storm. And again, if you were hanging out by the coast these past two weeks, we had such big surf that it was amazing. I just thought, man, this is such a powerful, I mean, just display of nature. But the storms... The swell, these huge, miraculous, big, powerful things that we witness, I mean, they're nothing compared to the power of God. They're nothing compared to the one who created them. And the one who could literally speak a word and they will listen, they will submit to him. They will be silenced. God has that kind of power. All of creation is strong and big and powerful as it is, listens to the word of the Lord. But it, it is crazy to me that the apple of his eye, the crown jewel of his creation, his creature, man, 
has a problem with this. He tries to rebel and ignore the word of the Lord. All of humankind has sinned against him. All of humankind calls into question God's goodness and righteousness and holiness and steadfast love. And as ridiculous as that is, we know that God still cares deeply that we are perishing. Jesus cared for the disciples in the boat, although they were overcome with fear. God cares for all of us, even though we can be overcome with fear and still ignore his word. And there's no greater verse, I think, in the Bible that explains God's love and care for us that we not perish than John 3.16. Can we recite that together, okay? John 3.16, it's on the screen. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the answer to the disciples' questions. Jesus, do you care that we were perishing? The answer is yes. He deeply cared that they were perishing, and he will soon give his life to demonstrate his care on the cross. So Jesus silences the storm. Then he turns to his disciples and asks them a question in Mark uh, 4.40. He says this, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now what is Jesus really asking here? I think what he's kind of asking is this, how is it that you still don't have faith in me? He's looking at his disciples and saying, how is it that you do not still understand and believe that I am who I say I am? If you knew who I am, if you were paying attention to what I have told you, if you knew how sure my word is, how mighty my power is, how deep my care is for you, this storm, nor any other storm in life, would overtake you with fear like this again. Now, I want to point out how Jesus is connecting our fears with our lack of faith here. Did you catch that? He says this, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So let's ask the question, what is the relationship between fear and faith? What is the connection between fears that consume us And a faith in God that should sustain us. Well, I think it's this. I think in times of distress, in times of danger, in times of anxiousness, when fear is dominant in our lives, faith is absent. When fear is dominant in our lives, faith is absent. And that's because I think fear tries to suffocate faith. Now, I want to be clear, really quick on fear. Not all fear is sinful. Not all fear is sinful, so I'm not saying that all fear is faithlessness, therefore it is sin. But I do believe that all fear is the fruit or the consequence of sin, okay? Because fear entered the world the moment sin did. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating of the tree of good and evil. And they chose to trust themselves over God. And they quickly discovered shame and fear after making this decision, Knowing that they disobeyed God, they ran and they hid themselves from God. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? Afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. 
Church, Adam and Eve had zero reason to fear God or anything else in the Garden of Eden because everything was perfect. They lived in perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect peace physically, perfect peace mentally, perfect peace spiritually, but sin disrupted all of that. We experience fear because sin brought pain and brought sorrow and brought death and brought danger and brought uncertainty, all of which are the root of all fear in our lives. Do you see that? Now, there are different kinds of fear. John Flavel wrote a lot about this, and he's an English Puritan that preached the word of God faithfully, was ejected out of his church in England, tremendous persecution, but he wrote on fear, and he had a lot of reasons to write on fear because he experienced fear a lot, and he was, uh, his life was threatened quite often. But he was saying there are three types of fear. There is natural fear. This is the kind of fear that if, if you're surfing in the ocean and you see a shark fin pop, pop up, it's okay to be afraid of that, okay? That's a good kind of fear. You should get out of the water as fast as you can because you could possibly die. That's called a natural fear. That's not sinful. That's not faithless. That's just like fear that comes from a broken world get out of the water. There's religious fear. This is the fear um, of, of, that a Christian or a person would have of God because the acknowledgement that God exists, that God is good, that God is holy, that God is just, that God will hold account for our sins. And the person who would commit themselves to God because they think he is holy and worthy of their praise and worship, there is this religious fear of God this desire to want to please, serve, and love God and be with God because apart from God will be absolutely terrifying. This is religious fear. And then there is sinful fear. This is the kind of fear that I'm talking about this morning. Sinful fear or faithless fear tempts us to doubt God's promises. It tries to get in between us and the truth about God and it tries to divorce those things. It tries to blind us to knowing who God is and what God has for us and God's love for us. To give a few biblical examples, we see this in Abraham's life. So in the beginning, when God called Abram and Sarai out of the land of Chaldeans, God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he'd give them a beautiful land and that he would be their God and he'd make a beautiful, wonderful, huge nation out of them and th- through their, his family, all the world would be blessed. He got all these promises from God and almost immediately afterwards, him and Sarah are traveling through Egypt and he is struck with fear because he thinks, I mean, this is good, good on him. His wife is so beautiful that Pharaoh would actually kill him and take his wife. And so what Abraham does is he's like, you know what? I'm just, let's just lie. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to lie. You're my sister. Pharaoh ends up taking his wife. God intervenes by God's grace. Sarah is given back to uh, Abraham all as well. But what is, what is absent there is Abraham's faith in what God told him. What is present, though, is his fear. His fear that God would not protect them, that God would not fulfill his word in his life. One more biblical example is Moses. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush and God had commissioned Moses to free the people in Egypt, Moses over and over and over again is saying, I'm not, I'm not the right guy. How am I going to go up to, Egypt, go up to Pharaoh and tell him to demand your people, to demand the release of your people? And God keeps telling him, hey, listen, I'm, you're, going to do, you're going to do miraculous works in my name. Here, let me give you some examples. He showed Moses exactly the kind of power that he would actually be able to wield and display on behalf of God to show Pharaoh 
that God is serious about releasing his people. And Moses, even at the end of seeing all these signs, he just says, no, I'm afraid. Please pick somebody else. Moses, his fear eclipsed his faith in who God was and what God can do, even though God's power was clearly on display in his life. One more example. This is the people of Israel. When the people of Israel were marching through the desert, God had delivered them from captivity. God had done exactly what he said he would do. He was faithful to his word, faithful to his covenant, even though the people of Israel were unfaithful and wayward. They come to the promised land and God says, this is the land I'm giving you. It's yours, take it. So Moses sends some spies into the land. The spies come back and they go, man, it's exactly how God told us it would be. It's beautiful. It flows with milk and honey. But the inhabitants of the land are mighty and powerful. There are even giants that live in the land. We do not think we should go in there because we will surely die. And a few spies actually said, no, like God has given us this land. But the people ultimately decide, no, we can't do it because we will perish. Now, what is absent in that story? Faith. Faith is absent. God had told them directly, this is the land that I will give to you. Take it. And yet, they were filled with fear because of the opposition they saw in the land. And that fear eclipsed their faith. That fear blinded them to the promise of God. And they chose to do otherwise. Where sinful fear is, I would argue faith is not. Sinful fear pushes faith out. And it puts in its place doubt. Like, will God actually help you? Will God actually give you this land? Does God really care to hear your prayers? Is he even listening? Is there even a God? And if there is, why would he let you go through this? Why isn't he helping you? Sinful fear tries to call into question God's heart towards us. It tries to distort God's character. It tempts us to think God does not care because if he did, I mean, wouldn't he do something about your pain? in your suffering, in your situation? How can a God of love or a God who loves you just leave you in your circumstances? Sinful fear calls into question God's heart towards us. And where sinful fear is, faith is not. Now to quote John Flavel, he said, so much as our souls are empty of faith, they are in times of trouble filled with fear. If men would but dig to the root of their fears, they would certainly find unbelief there. Why is that? I think this is the answer. Because if we fully trusted that God loves us, which he does, church, he tells us over and over and over again. If we fully trust that God will never leave us, which he will not, he promises us that. And if we fully believed when he said that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, if we believed that fully, then fear would have no place to reside in our hearts. Because our hearts would be so flooded with the sure hope that our God loves us and that he will never forsake us, even in the midst of the most horrible storms that we have and experience in this life. So here's the question for all of us today to consider. Is there something in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds that fill us with faithless 
fear. Something that keeps you up at night, that consumes your mind, that changes your attitude, that drives you away from God and godliness and takes you to a place of sadness or anxiousness or hopelessness or fear or even doubt. What fears tempt you or attempt to consume you? I mean, it really could be anything. Could it not? It could be the death of a child. It could be early signs of dementia. It could be not being able to physically do the things that you love to do anymore. A life of loneliness and unfulfilled dreams. Not having enough money to retire. Looking like a fool in front of those you esteem the highest. Losing your spouse to cancer. It could even be the fear of your son or your daughter not coming to faith in Jesus. These are all very, very real and serious fears. And we may not experience these exact fears, but I guarantee you, church, there will be times in our lives where these fears, these types of fears, very real and present fears, will come into our lives. And by the authority of God's word, I want to tell you that God cares that God does not just leave you just to perish in a boat. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So what do we do with these fears when it seems as if they are suffocating us? What do we do when our storms feel as if they are sinking our boat and we feel like we are perishing? Here's an answer. We move our eyes off of whatever that terrifying thing is and we fix them firmly on the only one who has the authority to silence our fears and calm the storm. And that is, without a shadow of a doubt, our Lord Jesus. He is faithful and true. I want to quickly point out three hopeful truths seen in the text that I know will help us when fear comes knocking at our door. Point number one, we can trust Jesus' word. Can we not, church? Mark 4, 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus had a purpose for getting in the boat. Jesus had a plan to get across the Sea of Galilee. Um, the old preacher Leonard Ravenhill famously said, faith is taking God at his word. Jesus said, let us go across to the other side. Trust that he will accomplish all that he sets out to do. Just as God's word will never return void, but will always accomplish all that God purposes, so the word made flesh will accomplish all that God purposes. Jesus accomplished the sea crossing. Why? Because, Jesus, because God purposed in Jesus that he would accomplish the salvation of his people on the cross. Every word that rolls off our Lord's lips are sure and trustworthy. So when fear assails us, we can trust his words when he says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Point number two, we can trust Jesus' heart. To quote John Flavel again, he said, if we were to understand how dear we are to God, our relation to him, our value in his eyes, and how he protects us by his faithful promises and gracious presence, 
we would not tremble at every appearance of danger. The word of God tells us that we are deeply loved by God. If we could only just get a, a, a glimpse of comprehension of how deep that love is that he has for you and for me. And we kind of do, right? Because God shows the depths of his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8 tells us. Jesus also taught us to have no fear in Matthew 10. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So when fear tempts us to doubt if God cares if we are perishing in our loneliness or in our sickness or in our depression or in our pain, in our fear, we can have faith in Jesus and his love for us. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Lastly, we can trust Jesus' power. Now the disciples responded appropriately upon witnessing Jesus silence the storm, did they not? In verse 41, and they were filled with not just fear like they had in the boat when the storm was there, but great fear, the same word used for the great storm. So mega fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why were they filled with this kind of fear? Because there is only one who has authority over the wind and the sea. Only one. And he is no mere man. Psalm 89.9 tells us that there is only one who rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65.7, there is only one who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 107, only one who made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. There's only one and he is our God. He is unmatched in power and he is for us. So who then is this that even cancer and sickness obey him? Who then is this that even mental illness and pandemics obey him? Who then is this who can calm anxiety and silence fear? Who then is this that even death and sin have no hold on him? His name is Jesus, church. He is God incarnate. He is Lord over all, especially over our fears. Let us conclude with Psalm 46. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God help us to be still and know that you are God. Let's pray. Father, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, God, for giving us the bread from heaven. 
Jesus, your son, the Messiah, the Christ, who came to save us from our sin, who both lived according to your law, lived perfectly, and died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who could not. It is only in the name of Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins. It is only in the name of, in the name of Jesus that we have peace, shalom with you, God. We praise your name. God, thank you for becoming man. Thank you for showing who you are to us in the pages of scripture. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. And thank you, Jesus, for being enough to sustain us even when we are weak and afraid and scared and anxious. Jesus, you know our frailty. You are able to sympathize with us. So we praise your name that we can trust your word. For your word is sure. We can trust your heart because, God, you care so deeply about us, so much so that you sent Jesus that none would perish. And we can trust your power. You can calm a storm. You can calm our hearts and our minds in the most severe circumstances. Your power can endure and sustain us. So, Father, we give you all the glory and the praise. Help us, God, to resist faithless fear. And Holy Spirit, please give us faith that fully trusts the name of Jesus in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.